There are not many documented instances of an insider breaking from the script, offending the very institutions that give her money and social status. Courage doesn't always feel good. I like to live my life without regrets. Hmm. And sometimes there's a price to pay for that. Reshma Saujani was, until very recently, CEO of the nonprofit Girls Who Code. She set out to change big tech by recruiting for big tech. If a company's engineers are more than 70% male, she was going to teach software coding to so many girls and young women, they would overwhelm the workforce into gender balance. She no longer believes in her initial theory of change. And she said as much to her funders. Look, when I started Girls Who Code, I too bought into the narrative that these companies were going to save the world. And then, you know, I think my role became, gosh, I can't teach all these girls to go into the lion's den. Like, I need to equip them to be prepared to dismantle it if they need to. Today on Art of Power, Reshma Saujani explains how she got to the point where she needed to leave the celebrated organization she started and what she has learned about the people in power at tech's highest echelons. I think what I learned is that nobody gives you power, you have to take it. For anyone who wants to make change from the inside, Get ready for a healthy splash of cold water. We are launching a summer program called Girls Who Code. And we're going out there and recruiting young girls from disadvantaged communities. And we're going to teach them how to code. Reshma Saujani was beloved when she first came into the tech industry because she offered help. Her message to tech leaders, you don't have female engineers because there aren't enough qualified women. My nonprofit, Girls Who Code, will help you solve that. We'll run boot camps and after-school programs to teach girls and young women how to write software. We'll train roughly half a million in less than a decade. Mentorship is the key to getting more girls excited about math and science. They have to touch, feel, and see women who look like them so they can actually believe that they can. But at an invite-only tech conference with a live performance by Beyonce's kid sister Solange and Bose wireless headphones in the swag bags, Reshma became threatening. She told tech leaders... You've got a problem I cannot solve, a problem of values. So I think you're describing a conference that I was asked to speak at that's pretty exclusive. It was right after the James Damore memo. The James Damore memo is an infamous document written by a now former Google employee about how women may be genetically less suited to engineering and leadership roles and how equality in the workforce may be a misguided goal. Yes, um, that really fired me up and I think fired up a lot of women because, you know, he insinuated that that women aren't qualified. And I think sometimes the conversation we're not having in the Valley or quite frankly anywhere is that privilege is often something for white men, not for people of color. 
and we're not having a conversation about unearned privilege in white spaces. And, you know, I think that the implicit ask was that I come and do my standard stump speech about girls who code and why girls should learn how to code and how that's good Mm -hmm. for everybody and blah, 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 blah. Very feel good. Very feel good. Very Mm -hmm. feel good. Um, I just didn't feel like, I didn't feel right, like showing up, especially to that audience and not speaking my truth. Mm. What she said on that stage, Reshma's truth, was a lot of leaders in technology started off as social rejects. And these self-described misfits and outcasts, they finally find a place where they belong. That's a recording of her giving her talk. In it, she says Silicon Valley became the nerd haven, the place where you don't get beat up for talking about cryptocurrencies, where converses and hoodies are the fashion, where, if you get rich enough, you can even date a model. Silicon Valley becomes the real-life revenge of the nerds, or its sequel. And in true Hollywood fashion, the geeks promise that with their newfound power, They're going to save the world. She thought for sure these nerds would accept the next gen of nerds, many women and people of color, who came along looking for their place. Tech CEOs love to talk about how there's no problem that they can't solve. Well, I see one right here and right now, and we're not solving it. I think that the Valley has thought of itself as this libertarian meritocracy. We don't discriminate against women. We don't discriminate against people of color. All we want is talent. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is just not true. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think time after time, we have seen very talented people go to these companies and be pushed out or not get hired. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my truth is that is that Silicon Valley is not a meritocracy, um, that it, all nerds are not welcome, hmm. and that if we're really going to change the world, if we're really going to create the best products of today and tomorrow, we need a diverse table, mm-hmm. um, and we have to own that it, it doesn't exist. I mean, honestly, it's like it wasn't that radical. Right? That's what, I mean, that's, that's kind of like what I'm thinking as I listen. It to wasn't you. that <laughs> radical. And what was the response in that room? Silence. Silence. It was kind of wild. I mean, every speaker at that conference had gotten, after they gave a speech, uh, 10 minutes of Q&A. I was the only speaker that they had canceled the Q&A for. Hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I mean, and then afterwards, uh, of course, the, you know, the five women <laughs> that were there all came up to me and hugged me and said, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Hmm. But, you know, I, I gave a lot of talks and... They often end with a standing ovation, definitely end with sometimes a crowd of people talking to me about what I had just said. This did not end that way. Did you feel in that moment when you're standing there kind of getting crickets instead of applause, did you feel at all like, did I just overstep? No. I didn't feel like I overstepped. I feel like there's no point of having power if you don't use it and that, you know, God had given me a platform to say the truth, that doesn't mean that, that, that you're going to get a standing ovation every time you do that, that, that there will be a price to pay. Mm-hmm. 
I tell young women this all the time, that when you think you do something brave, the way we depict it on TV is there's this euphoric moment where the sun shines and the music Mm. comes on and you feel glorious. Mm. And the reality is, is you often feel alone, Mm -hmm. but that's the point. You know, since I gave that speech, we've barely received a dime from them. Well, I should say a small dime. A small dime. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Who is they, Reshma? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble now. I mean, the the speech that I'm talking about is I gave it, it was at Google Zeitgeist. At Google. Mm -hmm. What is Google Zeitgeist? Google Zeitgeist is their, I guess, big conference that they do, their top customers in the world. I mean, the person who spoke before me was President Biden. Hmm. Like, it's that level. (laughs) Why why did you just say I would get you in trouble? (laughs) I've really never mentioned them. We are giggling that awkward giggle you get when you know you're breaking the rules. Reshma Saljani, among the select few, along with Joe Biden, she is invited to address the tech elite and is not supposed to tell them their values are off. And she definitely isn't supposed to recount how she did it to some journalist on some podcast, even if it is years later. This is the first time Reshma is naming Google and discussing the experience fully on the record. Reshma's speech was in 2017, in the early days of the Me Too movement. She is breaking the code, pun intended. The day before the speech, there were rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And so I actually... Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Maybe I'm telling you more than I should. No, no, Here we are. Yeah. Um, But there were rehearsals, and I give my speech, and I'm asked very directly to change it. Hmm. Um. That I am squandering an opportunity and that is, is that, is that really true? And maybe you want to think about it differently. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to change it. And then, you know, throughout the, the day and then there's a very big dinner and, you know, pretty powerful people kind of approach me and my team mm-hmm. and uh, encourage us to think about giving an alternative speech. Wow. Wow. So this, I mean, what's even more extraordinary about this story is that it's not like you jumped on stage to shock the audience. It's that a day in advance, everyone knew you were going to do it and was telling you don't do it. Yeah. Wow. And I knew again that, because I was told subtly or not so subtly, that there would be a price to pay. Hmm. Um, This was a very powerful, influential audience. I was, you know fundraising for my nonprofit to teach girls to code. And so every dollar is really precious. I used to always joke that like, I feel like I spent the past 10 years like strapping my baby to my back and like begging for, for money <laughs> to people that were very well resourced. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, there, I knew that there was going to be at that moment a price to pay mm-hmm. um, for my courage. And so can you recall what your exchange is with the chief of Google after you have on his stage uh, given a speech about the 
extensive bias in the tech industry in companies like his that is keeping women and people of color out? Well, here's the awkward thing. He wasn't in the room. Mm. I was the only speech he had intentionally been taken out for. So I couldn't actually have that conversation, which was probably the point. Though then they did post that speech online in their archives. Um, Well, they probably posted every speech online. I did notice how few views it got. Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Did you as well? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, about a thousand, give or take. What'd you make of that? Um... I didn't give much thought to it. I think everything that has happened with Google afterwards is, to me, par for the course. Um, Honestly, though, I really think they meant more for them in terms of, like, what was happening in the room. Like, I I did think about, well, why would they pull out Larry and Sergey and Sundar for my speech Hmm. when they were there for every other one? Oh, all three of them. Wow. She's referring to Larry Page and Sergey Brin, Google's founders, and Sundar Pichai, the company's CEO. Why would they, why would I be the only speaker where they didn't, they suddenly, and I have all this in email, right? Like, oh, we're, we decided not to do Q&A. Like, mm-hmm. why would you do that? I mean, I, I, I would hope and think that um, as a CEO, I would want to hear that kind of challenge and that kind of dissent and mm-hmm. that type of, like, again, if all nerds are welcome, if we're really trying to get the most talented people to build the products of today and tomorrow, let's have an honest conversation about what those barriers are. Mm-hmm. Let's stop pretending, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, because mm-hmm. the shock of it all is, like, to me, like, I don't know about you, I was bullied when I was a kid, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I was, you know, an overweight kid that was constantly, um, and I was brown in, in a white town. I mean, there's so much, right? Brown in so, a white town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. think that, so much of my empathy, so much of my love for the underdog mm-hmm. comes from my experience. And so one of the things I genuinely never understood mm-hmm. was that when you are, you know, a CEO or a tech CEO or an engineer, more than likely you were a nerd mm-hmm. and more than likely you were bullied or excluded. Mm-hmm. And so instead of making you more open to people who are not like you, why has it made you more discriminatory? That's mm-hmm. what I want to understand. Mm. And that's the conversation we should be having. Mm-hmm. Like you would think that tech would be the most diverse, right? The most. Because so many people have come there after being bullied and finally found their haven. And ostracized and correct. Yeah. When did you stop to believe in the meritocracy myth? When did you start to sort of feel more skeptical uh, about the tech industry? I think when my students started getting internships and hearing about their experiences or or not getting full-time hires and just, again, seeing the resistance. I mean, you have to, you know, we've taught 450,000 girls and I am kind of like big Mm -hmm. sister. So I hear everybody's stories and I hear what's happening and... And when I get, you know, what I started to happen is these emails from these very talented women and women of color, 4.0 at MIT, 4.0 at Carnegie Mellon, 4.0 at Stanford, and they can't even get an internship. There are the speeches that have changed history and been celebrated for it. 
And then, more often, there are the speeches that attempt to make a change and don't get rewarded, even provoke punishment. Reshma believes that is what happened to her. In 2017, her nonprofit received at least a quarter million dollars from Google. The next year after her speech, Google gave Girls Who Code nothing, according to their annual reports. And in the years that followed, Google cut the group a few small checks. We reached out to Google, and in an email, a company spokesperson said Reshma was supposed to give a talk based off her popular TED Talk, not something completely different. The spokesperson said that Google's CEO and founders regularly go in and out of speeches, and the charge of retaliation is absolutely untrue. Google changed its funding priorities, but it did match more than $47,000 in donations to Girls Who Code after the Zeitgeist event. There's another moment, also in 2017, that made Reshma Saljani question the values of big tech leaders. To me, I think a big eye-opener, you know, was when Trump came to power and what companies did. President-elect Trump pledged his aid in helping top tech executives. Donald Trump praised the tech executives gathered around that table as the best in the world. And how they kind of just stood by and, and watched and participated. Uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon.com, I'm super excited about the And then I realized, oh, this isn't about change-making, this is about capitalism. Hmm. And it's it's not their obligation to hire women. When you say that specifically when Trump came in and you watched the reaction of companies, what specifically disappointed you? We had... And I wrote about this. I mean, we had gotten a call from Ivanka's team, you know, right when President Trump was inaugurated to say, you know, the big initiative that she wanted to do was on coding. Mm. So Ivanka Trump reached out to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a dilemma because even though I am a proud Democrat, I had, you know, gone to more states than I can count for Hillary. Like I was also the CEO of an organization that wasn't partisan. Mm -hmm. You know, half of my students' parents voted for Trump. Mm And, you know, part of what and what I said to Ivanka was like, look, I will come and discuss this initiative with you. But there are two things that are, are non-negotiables. There cannot be a Muslim ban mm-hmm. and you cannot discriminate against undocumented students because, again, so much of our community mm-hmm. are those girls. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we stand by one another. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, no, 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 of course not. And then, of course, two weeks later, the Muslim ban. And so I refused to go. And then I wrote an op-ed, which pretty much said, I'm not going and neither should you. Mm, you being other tech CEOs. You know, this isn't a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. When there is an administration that so overtly discriminates, you know, against trans girls, Muslim girls, black girls, brown girls, poor girls, right? There's no, there's no moral consciousness, no compass. And, um, and, you know, when I did that, I had to literally <laughs> email... I remember that morning, I, you know, when the op-ed was going live, mm. and I started that morning by, like, sending an email to, you know, Sheryl Sandberg. I want you to know I'm writing this email. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates, Melinda Gates. To tell them about your op-ed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I was basically calling them out, too. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were in a space where at that time, you know, as a nonprofit, you didn't venture into these conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, they felt post-partisan. It was about morality. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and so, yeah, I, I, I want to live doing right by the girls that I serve and doing right by my conscience. And I just don't think that there's any point of having power or having a platform if you don't use it for good. And so then you do that and you watch the steady march of big tech CEOs go to that meeting. Your thought is? I'm disgusted. And again, I'm thinking like, I think there's a part of me that's thinking, oh my God, what am I, what have I done? You know, I'm teaching all of these young women because I had sold tech hard, right? Mm. Mm. And I am, I yeah, I, I think I'm disgusted, and I'm 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 asking myself like, what have I done? What is my role? You know, if if my if my life is if I wanted to create the next generation of change makers, do I need to do I need to change what I'm teaching? And instead of, like, preparing them to go into industry, should I be preparing them to take down the very industry that they're in? You know, Reshma, I feel utterly disoriented by this conversation. Um, and, and what I mean, and, and in a great way, by the way, years ago... When you were beginning your journey, in some ways, as a tech evangelist through Girls Who Code, yes, there is a problem, but this is a problem we can solve. Fans would say, ah, thank God, here's this woman who's not just complaining. Mm -hmm. Critics would say, oh, she's just like grabbing, you know, financial crumbs from these giants to to build some cause that's not really going to move the needle. But you felt I've got to try, and not just I've got to try, you felt, you felt more utopic mm-hmm. about, about the project at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you start to feel as the politics shifts and you see the reactions of, of CEOs to the politics shifting, you feel disheartened and like it's just not possible. And I guess I am disoriented because I'm just a little amazed at your honesty. Mm. Yeah. And as you're talking, it's probably also one of the reasons why I decided to step down. Reshma Saljani stepped down as CEO of Girls Who Code a few weeks ago. She left her job without a clear next job. She had to because she saw she'd reached that tough juncture where what Girls Who Code needed, it was different from what she had to offer. I think that I've always struggled... um, to not speak my truth, I, I have been thinking a lot about, um, with all the Stop Asian Hate stuff, I've been thinking a lot about this image that I have of my father. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in Schaumburg, Illinois, and, and the Midwest was not the place where you wanted to grow up brown. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, our house would often get spray painted or egged. Mm-hmm. I remember people would write, you know, go back to your own country. And I remember one day somebody had spray painted, go back to your own country. And I remember the next morning, my, I saw my dad outside um, with like a jar of Clorox and like 
you know, a towel and he would just mm. cleaning it off. And, and mm. I even think he was like humming to himself. <laughs> mm. And I remember like not one bad word, not like, God damn those kids or why did we come mm. to this country or nothing. Just, you know, because for him, that was the social tax of being an immigrant. And I remember distinctly for me watching him being like, I will never do that. I will mm. never be like him. And I say this with love and reverence. And what I mean mm. is that I will never be silent. I always am ready to fight back. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, we are an organization that needs resources to serve, to teach students. Mm-hmm. Part of my skill set is to fight with my words. And Mm. I needed to have the freedom to do that without having consequences for anything or anyone that I loved. Mm. And so you felt like the journey you are on and the skill that you have is not compatible with and maybe even harming the entity that you built. Well, at this point, right? Because I think think it was – I think in the beginning it was like this is why we – I had to create the frame of why teaching girls to code was important. And it's funny, my husband, my, Nahal, was teasing me, and we were out to dinner. He's like, you know, you didn't even tell me. Like, I never <laughs> asked you. Why did, why did you just – so I just kind of – You didn't tell him why you wanted to leave? You didn't tell him you no, were leaving? I didn't, no, I didn't really – I didn't do the call my dad and call my best friend and call him and ask. And I just did it because I knew that everybody would try to convince me not to. Mm. And I didn't think it through. I didn't have another job. I didn't have another plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my whole identity, I was the Girls Who Code CEO. Like, right. I, all I am is in a Girls Who Code t-shirt, sweatshirt. My kids, mm-hmm. like, every, it is my life. Mm-hmm. It is my, my everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, even today when I go to the doctor's office and they're like, are you employed? What do you do? I'm like, I don't even know. I fumble. Mm-hmm. I'm at a dinner. I don't know what to say. Reshma, there is something I want to understand, going back to the why I was so disoriented. It's, I know a lot of people who want to speak truth to power. Like, I know a lot of people like that. Um, I don't know as many people like that who are skillful at building relationships with capital P power. And you really were and are, right? I want to understand that piece of it. How is it that Reshma Saljani built up this organization, Girls Who Code, that has tech companies writing pretty substantial checks, right? Mm-hmm. We raised $100 million over the past 10 years, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I spoke with Deborah Singer, your chief marketing officer, She said something that it just summarized the dance she believes you do and do quite well, by the way. I'm going to play it for you. I think one of the most interesting challenges that we face is how do you hold an industry and corporate partners responsible and accountable when you also rely on them for funding? How do you bite the hand that feeds you? (laughs) exactly or like nip the hand so that you draw blood but the hand still feeds you but maybe it it changes (laughs) changes its feeding schedule it's very true I mean I, I I think that I sat down and I had a vision of what I wanted to change and how I was gonna get there 
Mm-hmm. And I believe that like passion is infectious, especially when it's mm-hmm. authentic passion. Mm-hmm. And I hustled and I harassed. I mean, the amount of Who'd emails. Who'd you harass? Who'd you har- name, name one person you harassed or an entity you harassed that you oh, won over. Gosh. Beth Comstack, who was the CMO of GE. Rochelle Parham, who was the CMO of eBay. Jack, who was at Twitter. She's referring to Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter and Square. My friend Alex Ablin, who ran community affairs at Google. And I would say for those four, I didn't harass them, but I met them in a place, told them my story. Mm-hmm. And this is what I tell young people all the time, is I do believe that like when I meet like a young, passionate person, I'm like, tell me what you need. Where do I sign the check? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm in. Like, there mm-hmm. is nothing more infectious than when you meet somebody who truly believes in an idea, like truly Mm. believes. Mm -hmm. And I just, they felt that. And I don't think that's a secret. I don't think Mm -hmm. that that's a skill. So you named four people. It's very concrete. I can see it. And you pull each of them into a meeting. Maybe you're having a drink somewhere, maybe like a fruit Mm -hmm. juice or a a $12 black coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And then... And then the, each of them give me either, you know, each of them give me probably like, I don't know, $25,000, $50,000. And I realized at that time in 2010 that tech was like, you know, it was all the rage. It was like the celebrity. It was hot, right? Mm-hmm. And I got these four big companies, eBay, Twitter, Google, and GE, to say that they were supporting the launch of this program, Girls Who Code. Mm. And it was the right name, the right time. And the right kind of initial support. Mm. And it was lightning in a bottle after that. And it sounds like that. It's not like it was some grueling uphill slog, which is frankly what we so often hear about. It sounds like what you're saying is off we went. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. I've had a lot of, like my, my two political campaigns, uh, grueling slogs. Mm-hmm. Never could get a break. Mm-hmm. Never could catch fire. Um, it wasn't like that for Girls Who Code. It was meant to be. I know it sounds cheesy. I'm a little cheesy. It doesn't. You don't have. You don't have to disparage what you just said. We could have ended it at it was meant to be. Period. <laughs> Politics. This is a crucial detail about Reshma Saljani's journey. Girls who code. Her celebrated startup. It was not her dream job. It was more like her fallback plan, what she did when her first choice did not work out. In 2010, Reshma ran for Congress in New York. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney and her Democratic challenger, Reshma Saljani, squared off... She tried to unseat an incumbent. She lost horrifically badly. She connected me with her husband, Nahal Mehta, who described her sorry state the night of her loss and into the next day. She was just in, like, fetal position that night. And I think they stayed in the hotel room that we rented to watch the returns in New York. And I went home, I guess I went in the morning. The next day she was in the same position. And I was like, dude, come on. What was that morning like? Brutal. Brutal. I mean, you know, I really believed I was going to win that race. I didn't have a concession speech in my bag. And then I had to stand up in this, you know, my victory party that never ended up happening. And I didn't want to cry. There was all these, you know, young girls. Um, I didn't want them to see me cry. And then when I came home, I cried. And the next morning, I cried and cried and cried. 
And part of what it was is I just, I was embarrassed. I knew what the headlines were going to be, that like I got crushed. I mean, even now people love to talk about how many votes I didn't get and how much money I spent. It was like this gleefulness uh, about my loss. I remember your race in real time. Um, your name caught my attention because I identify with you. And I did that thing that a lot of people from the community will do, which is think, huh, that's interesting. What is she doing running? She's never going to win. <laughs> right? I did that thing that, like, you know, it's your own people do it the worst yeah. and the hardest, right? Because yeah. yeah. we don't believe. We don't believe. Yeah. And for me, that was kind of the end of the story. Yeah. And then years later, or you know, just only a couple years later, you start building this initiative that is wildly successful. And then a, a few years after that, you process what that loss meant. And I am frankly, like, kind of transformed personally by your lesson from that loss. Because you said, yeah, it was humiliating. And all y'all people who are haters are going to go on about how I lost. But you know what? It's the first time in my life that I was truly brave. Yeah, it's true. I had never done anything that I didn't think I could succeed at if I was really honest with myself. Um, and I think I wouldn't, it's, it's, it freed me. You know, it literally freed me to take these risks, to leave my CEO job, to speak truth to like very powerful people, to stand up and fight. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that that was the, that loss was the biggest gift. But it was painful. Mm -hmm. And why did it free you? How does that work? It freed me because I didn't die. And I don't, I, I think that so many times I thought if I failed at something that it would break me and that I could never recover. I think that's my biggest fear. It's not anymore, but it used to be, right? That I would go after something, it didn't work out, and then I would just become a shell of a person. And mm -hmm. I would never go try to take these big risks and these big swings again. Um, in many ways, success has the same effect. Like the more successful you are, the harder it is for you to leave, you kind of hang on. That's why I also wanted to leave Girls Who Code because people, this is the best thing you're ever gonna do in your life. You're never gonna, why, why would you leave? And I was like, is that true? Like, I don't know. But if I don't leave, I won't know. And maybe it will be. Reshma Saujani, who built an organization to let girls know they belong, to change what a programmer looks like. Maybe she will try her hand at politics again. Or maybe, given her ability to penetrate the tech industry at the highest echelons, she'll build herself another perch there. It's a powerful industry. Reshma, do you still believe that tech can change the world or... What do you see as the way forward on tech? I on do. The tech industry? I do. Mm -hmm. I do. I think tech can change the world. Like I do think that that my students are going to solve COVID, climate, and cancer, and that you have that giving you the power of technology, understanding how to code, building companies, building tech for good, 
is a powerful thing and we need to be sitting at the table. We have to be sitting at the table. So Mm -hmm. we do need to have women in this field and people of color in this field, period. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, I think the conversation we have to stop having is stop thinking that they're going to change on their own. They being the established companies who are industry leaders. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be like, well, you know, let me do the right thing and just, I mean, think about it. I always say like half of these companies know what I ate for breakfast. You're Mm -hmm. telling me that you can't can't go hire more women and and black engineers. (laughs) I mean, right? It's kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. especially when you look at, which I encourage everyone to, if you're really nerding out about this, the graduating rates of women and people of color in engineering and computer science departments from the very schools that they recruit from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not a talent problem. It's Mm -hmm. a will problem. And also a lot of these companies, their, their culture have been built without us. Mm -hmm. And so the real fundamental question is, is like, if you have been built a culture that didn't include women, that didn't include people of color, will you really let us in with mm-hmm. open arms? Will you change your culture? Or is the right thing to do is build an army of women and people of color who are going to build their own, the next generation of Facebook and Microsoft and Google? And your fundamental take is, oh, I, I used to think we just got to get more of you know, women and people of color in these dominant companies. But now I, Rishma, I don't really believe they can change. So I think that the the talent needs to kind of create their own from scratch. Ah, I'm st- I I am almost totally there but not totally. Oh, I thought you said that. No, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. No, no, yeah. no. No, sorry. What I mean is like I'm still tr- I think there's a piece of me that's still trying to figure out whether you can infiltrate them so much that they can change, but I'm, I, I would say that I, I, there's only 15% of me left that feels that that's possible. Hmm. And the other 85? Says you got you to gotta, you gotta build your own companies. You got to build your own cultures. So you're not actually sure that diversifying what exists is actually going to work? Well, and I think the reason why I feel less, um, and I say this as a lawyer, why I feel less because of the resistance towards organizing inside those companies mm-hmm. and the, resi- the silencing of dissent. Reshma, a final question for you, the guiding question of our show, right? We ask each guest who has accomplished remarkable things. We ask, so given your journey, given your experiences, how does power work in the real world? Like for real, give me a lesson that you really had to learn. I think what I learned is that nobody gives you power. You have to take it. And sometimes that you have to build your own. And there's no point of power unless you're going to actually use it for good. My lessons from Reshma Saujani. One, courage can feel awful. Remember that. And do not let the emotional discomfort or the hard reality of retaliation stop you when you need to do a courageous thing. Two, when you fail after you cry in the fetal position, really take in the fact that you are still alive. 
it didn't kill you. Let that fact give you more courage. Three, if you have passion, share it. There is nothing more attractive, even lucrative, than a person on a mission. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you start to really question your own life, your own choices, your leadership, hit subscribe. Go binge other episodes. Our guests are wonderful and sharing their wisdom with everyone. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends and family. We're just getting started. Your referrals keep us going. Let me know what you think. Text me at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Artfee411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.